you haven't done so already, we're going to look at Psalm 139 this morning, the latter part of the Psalter. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Psalm 139 in your pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you. Uh, yesterday I was reading uh, a blog post uh, by a missionary, and this, uh, these missionaries were serving in uh, Uganda, and they were uh, medical missionaries, they were doctors uh, serving over there, and he had written uh, one of several blog posts that he's put up over time, just sharing a little bit about his experience there and what life is like in Uganda. And he talks about one day, um, as, he, as he goes to the hospital, he's noticed these gas stations that have popped up. Now, let me pause and think, describe to you what he means by a gas station, okay? What he means by a gas station is um, a small table or a small tent uh, about the size of this pulpit that's sitting on the side, standing up on the side of the road, and there rests uh, two or three uh, repurposed plastic water bottles. And each water bottle contains gas. Some contain about two cups of gas, some contain about a cup of gas, and usually there's two, maybe three, and those are the gas stations in Uganda, okay? People traveling back and forth on roads, and you see that and you think, well, that's just how, it shows you how poor that country is. I mean, think about, when was the last time you, you bought just a gallon of gas for your car? I mean, two cups or a cup of gas, it's like one-sixteenth of a gallon or something like that. Uh, unless we're filling up our, getting gas for our lawnmowers or something like that, but we're, we just don't buy gas like that. We buy it in, in lump sums, some of us more than we want to, uh, to fill up our, our tanks. And so you hear about the repurposed water bottles that are serving as, as gas tanks and gas stations. You think, well, that's how poor they are and that's how hard it is, how difficult life is in, in Uganda. And you would be right. Uh, but this doctor, this medical missionary would say, in, in some ways you can say that, but those little makeshift gas stations are an indicator of, of progress and ultimately of hope. Because he can remember a time when there was not such a thing, uh, that people were not using uh, motorized vehicles like they are now. And it's a sign of progress moving forward. And he makes a, a pretty good point, a strong point. It's, it's one thing to look in. You can look at that and see how the, the glass is half, half empty, so to speak. This is how bad it is. And this is how much they're lacking, what the need is, and so on and so forth. Or you can look at it and see it's, it's a glass half full. Because of a mixture of circumstances, things are improving. They're, they're moving forward. They are getting better. There really is hope. Christians, as Christians and as believers today, uh, we have great reason to hope, to look at life with glass half full, so to speak. And certainly this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 139, gives us great reason to hope, great reason to, to find strength and uh, security and peace, particularly in our circumstances, to know that there's always hope because of God's presence in our lives so as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, Psalm 139. I'm going to read uh, this psalm uh, to us. Let's hear God's word. For the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you... Lord, know it completely. 
you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who, blast, you who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with an evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me. God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this word that you give to us. Help us to know that it is trustworthy and is true. It's you revealing yourself to us, and we pray that you would speak into our hearts and to our lives and show us more of your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Maybe you've heard this uh, question or heard other people uh, had this question put to them. If God can do anything, can God make a rock so heavy he can lift it? And this is a a question dealing with, you say that God is all-powerful. Well, God, can he make a, a rock that is so big that he can't lift it? And you know that there's no right answer to this. No matter what you say... Uh, God is, is, God can't do it. If you say, yes, God can make a rock so big he can't lift it, well, then he's done something, then you're saying he can do something that he can't do. There's something that he can't do. If you say, no, God can't make a rock that would be so big that he couldn't lift it, then again, he's, he's doing, there's something happening that he cannot do, and thus God is not all-powerful because there's things he cannot do. And so the question arises from that, as, as Christians, how do we talk about God being all-powerful? For us as believers, and what the Bible, I think, talks about when it says that God is all-powerful, it means that God is all-powerful in that he can do anything he chooses to do. God is able to do anything he chooses to do. He wants to create the universe. He speaks it into existence. He's able to create something from nothing. It just, it just happens by his, the sheer weight of his will. And you think, well, why is that important to us? What relevance does it have in, in our lives? Well, there's countless applications for that, but think about it, how it plays out and how important it is for our salvation and our, and our walk with God and understanding him uh, by faith. Take the, the, maybe the famous promise in Romans 8, uh, 28, 28. God works for the good of those who love him. 
Why is that promise true? It's only true because God is all-powerful. Because he's able to, to work and to will and to work all things for the good of those who love him. For our good in relationship to him. That's why it's important that God is all-powerful and able to do all things. It's how important for, it, for us to understand that, that God is still in control. Even when a loved one passes away, we know that God is still in control. When our circumstances are just crazy or overwhelming, or there's conflict, there's, there's frustration, uh, God is still in control because he's still all-powerful. And this particular attribute of God has, has relevance for us as we think about Psalm 139 because God being all-powerful uh, blends in and is necessary for all the other attributes related to God. And Psalm 139 celebrates for us or, or praises God for being present everywhere, for knowing all things. And because he's all-powerful, he's able to be present everywhere. Because he's all-powerful, he's able to know all things. And so God seeing and God knowing is what we're going to look at this morning. And there's three ways I want to break this uh, psalm down. First thing I want to talk about is God's knowledge is personal. God's presence is everywhere, number two, and then God's presence is important, okay? God's knowledge is personal, God's presence is everywhere, and God's presence is important. And God's knowledge is personal. Sometimes my wife and I will, will do the math, particularly around birthdays, and we'll, we'll kind of think about how old we are, and then we'll think, gosh, I don't feel that old. Uh, and, you know, in my mind, I'm still like in my 20s, or I'm still... In my, maybe my early 30s or something like that. The, the point is, I think, I, I know on paper I'm this age, but in my head, and as I think about myself, I'm still this age, which means I can still do this thing, these kinds of things, and I'm not like those people that are really that age. Perhaps you've, you've done this. You think about your age on paper, and well, it's like, that's, I'm not really like that at, at all. And, and the point is, we can have one view or one understanding of ourselves, one way of seeing ourselves, that may not be necessarily true. And a good question to ask at this point is, well, it's, it's good that I evaluate myself and I understand who I am and so on, but what's more important is, is how God sees me. And that's what's so wonderful and so beautiful about David in this psalm is how he unpacks how God sees us and he answers that question for us. For example, starting in verse 2, God knows all of our actions uh, if we're active, he, he knows it. If we're sleeping, he knows it. If we're at home, he knows it. If we're traveling at the store, he knows it. He knows all of our movements. He's able to watch us. Then there's how God knows our thoughts. Also in verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3, you are acquired, acquainted with all my ways. You know what's going on in my head. You, you know my thoughts and, and my ideas and my inclinations and my... Uh, my emotions and what I, what I tend to do and, and what I value and my agenda. And you know all of those things. It's one thing to, to know somebody's thoughts because you know somebody's who they are because you're, you're close to them, you're, you're in front of them. But when you're not around them, you don't know. But God knows everything about us all of the time. God knows things about me before I even do it. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Now, it's one thing for him to know what I'm, I'm doing because he sees, 
but he seems to know some way what I'm going to say or do before it's even done. God's complete presence and complete knowledge of us. And the question for us is, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean in in terms of what I'm to do with that? It's for us to remember that God knows us more than we know ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves on our own. And this is what David is celebrating, how personal the, the knowledge that God has of him. It's not a knowledge from a distance, but it's, it's a close, personal knowledge. It's, it's the kind of knowledge that's found in a relationship. It's the kind of knowledge that, that, that's found in somebody watching with affection and with love. I can remember years ago when we had our first child, and uh, she was like two months old. And Janelle's, or my wife's brother, came down to, to visit and to see us. He was single at the time and, and didn't have any children. And I remember him spending time with, with our daughter holding her and, and looking at her, and he just looked at us at one point and says, she's kind of boring. She doesn't do anything. She just kind of lays there. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, she's incredible. I mean, look at her little fingers and her toes and the way she does this or that and the way she, she kind of moves her mouth and does all this stuff. Like, I was so captivated and fascinated by her. She's not boring at all. Well, time goes by, and then we make a trip to visit him and his wife and his newborn. And I hold uh, their daughter, Camille, and I remember looking at her and thinking the same thing. I didn't say it. I was like, she's kind of boring. She just kind of lays there. I mean, sometimes she smells really bad. I mean, but to him, he's like, this is the best thing ever. And he couldn't take his eyes off of her, her hands and her, and her toes and her legs and how she moved and her smile and the noises that she would make and the hair that was kind of growing. All this detail about her, he just loved it and was just watching her and looking at her with such affection and with such love. Can you imagine that's how God views you? with so much uh, love and affection, so much knowledge of every detail, just being preoccupied with who you are and knowing who you are, that he knows you like that. He knows you that personally, that closely. Thinking about God's presence is everywhere is what David also celebrates here. David begins to ask these, these kind of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Of course, the answer is, is nowhere. The Bible talks about uh, presence there. It means the face of God. Sometimes we'll use this benediction from Numbers chapter 6, and we'll say, may the, 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 um, may the Lord make his face shine on you. We're talking about God's presence. May God's presence be with you and go with you. That, that kind of looking, that kind of attention upon us. And then David begins to ask all these questions and make all these, these statements, starting in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there, which makes sense. You're closer to God. That's where God resides. If I make my bed in, in Sheol, your place may say that the place of the dead or, or the grave, he's also there. Uh, he's in that, that place of, of punishment, if you will. You can't He's not blind to that reality there. He knows what's, what's going on there as well. Then in verses 9 and 10, he suggests that maybe it's a matter of, of distance. Maybe I can get away from God, farther away from him. He talks about the uttermost parts of the sea. 
if you're an Israelite, the sea meant away from Israel. It meant going out west. It meant being in a different country, being in part of a different nature, a different land. It's almost like he's suggesting maybe if I'm, if I'm, even if I'm in a place where you're not worshipped, where you're not celebrated, where they don't know you, you still will know me. You'll still be aware of where I'm at. And then he talks about darkness. Will the darkness hide me? In verse 11, surely the darkness shall cover me. Darkness in the sense of, sure, if I go into a dark room and the lights are off, that maybe he won't see me. That's not the case. He can still see us in the darkness. But think about it like this, too. Sometimes the dark, darkness in the Bible refers to difficulty. It refers to uh, being in a dark place, being distressed, being in a bad place uh, morally. Even if in those places, he still sees, he still knows. This is like saying maybe, like he's suggesting, maybe if I, it's only when I go to church, that's when God sees me. But when I'm out of church, when I'm doing uh, maybe what we would call maybe bad things, then maybe he doesn't see me. That's not the case. Even in those dark places, in those dark times, he still sees, he still knows. What's the application for us My question for you is, what are you doing with the presence of God in your life? If if God is is all-seeing, all-knowing, there's no place that we can go where we cannot see him, we cannot uh, experience him, where where he does not see us or uh, is not aware of us, what are we doing with God's presence in our life? Is it something you're knowing as a believer? Is it something you're cognizant of as a Christian the presence of God in your life. Now, sometimes we experience the presence of God. We get those moments where you feel a sense of peace over something. Uh, we get a sense of joy or a sense of confidence or a sense of, uh, a sense of that, that God is confirming this is what I need uh, to be doing, what I need to be about. As we think about o- obeying him and, and following him, we, we get that presence. We feel that experience of God's presence in our lives. But sometimes we don't experience the presence of God. When our prayers go unanswered, when, you know, things that weren't planned happen in our lives, it feels like, feels like God is, is, I'm not experiencing his presence because things are just so off. But according to Psalm 139, God is always present with us. God always knows what's happening in our lives, whether we feel it or not, whether we're experiencing God's presence or not. We know that by faith. Verse 18, I awake and I'm still with you. No matter what is happening, we are always with God. Which suggests to us, as a reminder to us, that the experience of God is not the goal of the Christian life. The, the goal of the Christian life is the glory of God. The glory of God in our lives. The experience of God is, is not the goal. It's not what we're seeking Now, does it happen when we glorify God, when we seek the glory of God in our lives? Do we experience him? Certainly so, but that's not the chief reason why we do things. We don't come to church to glorify, uh, to experience God. We come to church to glorify God. We're not coming to church to to get some kind of feeling or to get some kind of uh, peace or something like that. Does that happen? Yes. But the purpose of being here and gathering together is to glorify God, to praise him for who he is and what he has done. When you sit down and open up your Bible and and pray to him, the purpose of that time is not to experience God, but it's to glorify him and to honor him and to know him. 
Do you experience God in those times? Yes. But that's not your goal that's driving you to open up the word or to come to church. It's to glorify God and to walk with him and to know him. That experience of God will ebb and it will flow. And if you're always looking for the experience of God as an indicator whether God is in your life, whether God is present in your life, you're going to be disappointed. But the beauty of Psalm 139 is to remind us that no matter where you are, what you're doing, God is present with you. God sees you. God knows. He's aware. And he's pursuing us with his love and with his affection, with his counsel, with his care, with his, with his spirit. He is pursuing us as we are engaged in his presence. The last thing, God's presence is important. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, think about the, the prayer that David uh, prays, the, the last two verses. He says, and this is my translation, your translation is a little bit different from in the Pew Bibles. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, yours may say anxious, and lead me in the way everlasting. Talked about the, the presence of God. God, no matter where I am, you know. No matter what I'm saying, what I'm doing, you, you know. And then he closes this prayer, closes this, this psalm with this prayer. Search me and, and know if there's any grievous way in me. Because I want to be on the way everlasting. And the question for us that we need to ask is, why does David make that prayer? Why does he say that prayer? It's because he wants more of God's grace in his life. He wants more of God's mercy in his life. He wants more of God in his life. He's concerned about his soul. He's concerned about the health of his spiritual life, the health of his, of his mind and of his heart. And he wants everything about him to be pleasing to the Lord because he wants to know this way everlasting. He wants to be pursuing and knowing God more and more and more in his life. As Christians, shouldn't we be concerned whether we are living in sin or not. Shouldn't that be a top priority for us as believers? Is there sin in my life or not? Is there something that, is, that I'm participating, something that I'm doing that's not honoring to the Lord? Is there something I'm doing that's not bringing glory and honor to him? Because again, the glory of God is our aim as believers. And it's healthy for us to want to know if there's sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. We need to know if we're engaged in some sort of lust. We need to know if we're neglecting some kind of duty that the Bible prescribes to us. We need to know if we're failing to do something God expects of us. We need to be engaged. Are we engaged in any kind of unhealthy habit or practice, something that would not bring God glory and honor? David is concerned that there's things in his life that would not be pleasing to the Lord. And it's fitting that David would pray that because we can't be trusted to know and understand our own hearts because sin is that powerful and that strong. Not only is sin strong enough to, to pull us uh, to fail in temptation and to succumb to something, to be disobedient, to, to lust or what have you, but it's also powerful enough to, to cloud our, our hearts and our minds to darken us where we even know that we're sinning at the time. Think about um, when you have a bad attitude about your neighbor. You think in yourself, well, of course I have this bad attitude towards them because they deserve it. And that justifies why you're treating them poorly or harshly. 
and you're blind to the fact that you're treating your neighbor harshly or unjustly or unrightly because sin has that power to darken us and to lead us and to deceive us. And so David prays, God, search me and know me. You're the only one that ultimately knows what's going on. You're the only one that can discern, ultimately judge me what I need to be corrected in. And certainly he gives us his word. He gives us his, his commandments. We read the Ten Commandments. He gives us things to evaluate and compare our lives to. But I don't know about you, but I, I, I read this psalm and I read these, this prayer that David makes at the end, and while on the one hand it's inviting, yes, I want a God that knows me like that, and there's security, there's comfort, he's in control, he, he's safe, but at the same time, I don't know if I want him searching me. I don't, want him, I don't know if I want him always seeing me and always discovering what I'm doing that week in and week out because I don't want to be exposed and ultimately because I don't want to be condemned. And it makes me think about uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. They, f- they fail God. They partake in something that they shouldn't. And what's their response? They go and hide. And God comes into his garden and he's looking for, for them as though he doesn't know where they are. It's because Adam and Eve are hiding. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to be vulnerable. And surely David knew this. That to, to pray such a risky prayer, search me and know me, O God, Surely David knew what he's exposing himself to, to this holy, righteous, pure God. He knew that he would be exposing himself and vulnerable to him. How did he do that? How is he able to, to go, God, I want you to know me. I want you to tell me what's, what's in my life, but at the same time know that God was going to accept him at the end. I think we can only answer that by looking at it from this side of the New Testament, this side of, of the cross, if you will. And think about Christ on the cross and how he prayed a psalm, not this psalm, 139, but how he took a portion of Psalm 22 when he in effect said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the world, words of my groaning? You read that psalm and it's a picture of somebody who's experiencing the absence of God in his life, the absence of God's presence in his life, felt and known. And this is Christ on the cross, going through and suffering the absence of God. Why? So that we could pray a prayer like this, search me and know me of God, and know that God's presence in our life will never be in jeopardy because God suffered what we deserved, because Christ took the punishment for what that searching and knowing would reveal. That we can go to God with the gospel in mind, knowing that you're not condemned, Romans 8, that, 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 that he has taken care of your shame, that he has taken care of your guilt, that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you become aware of in that searching, God is still going to accept you, he's still going to love you, that you're not held accountable for those things, and that he will empower you to know this everlasting way. To know that the reality and experience of God's presence in your life that changes you, that comforts you, that encourages you, that gives you rest, that gives you relief from your fears, from your worries, that gives you wisdom and direction, that gives you a knowledge and a true hope of who you belong to and who has died for you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, need your presence. 
But without Christ in our lives, we are left only to hide, only to, to run away and to avoid you. But with Christ, we know that we are safe. With Christ, we know that we are fully accepted. With Christ, we know that we are your sons, your daughters, that we've been adopted, that we've been redeemed, that we have been born again, that we've been cleansed, we've been made new, that we are your new creation because of Christ and what he has done for us. I pray the reality of your gospel would drive us to want to know you more, to want to know and experience your presence, to want to bring you glory and honor, to want to be a people pleasing to you. We ask that you would will and work for your good pleasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.